Here is part two of U.S. President number two, John Adams, election of 1796. <coughs> the election of 1796 was the first contested American presidential election. Twice George Washington had been elected to office unanimously, but during his presidency, deep philosophical differences between the two leading figures in the administration, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, had caused a rift, leading to the founding of the Federalist and Republican parties. When Washington announced that he would not be a candidate for a third term, an intense partisan struggle for the control of Congress and the presidency began. Like the previous two presidential elections, new candidates were put forward for voters to choose between in 1796. The Constitution provided for the selection of electors who would then choose a president. In seven states, voters chose the presidential electors in the remaining nine states, they were chosen by the state's legislature. The clear Republican favorite was Jefferson. Adams was the Federalist frontrunner. The Republicans held a congressional nominating caucus and named Jefferson and Aaron Burr as their presidential choices. Jefferson first declined the nomination, but he agreed to run a few weeks later. Federalist members of Congress held an informal nominating caucus and named Adams and Thomas. Pickney as their candidates, the candidate campaign was, for the most part, confined to newspaper attacks, pamphlets, and political rallies of the four contenders. Only Burr got the campaign. The practice of not campaigning for office would remain for many decades. Adams stated that he wanted to stay out of what he called the silly and wicked game of electioneering. As the campaign progressed, fears grew among Hamilton and his supporters that Adams was too vain, opinionated, unpredictable, and stubborn to follow their directions. Indeed, Adams felt largely left out of Washington's administration and did not consider himself a strong member of the Federalist Party. He had remarked that Hamilton's economic program centered around banks would swindle the poor and unleash the gangrene of avarice. Desiring a more pliant president than Adams, Hamilton maneuvered to tip the election to Pickney. He coerced South Carolina Federalist electors pledged to vote for their favorite son, Pickney, to scatter their second votes among candidates other than Adams. Hamilton's scheme was undone when several New England state, New England state electors heard of it and agreed not to vote for Pickney. Adams wrote shortly after the elections that Hamilton was a proud, spirited, conceited, aspiring mortal, always pretending to be morality with as, as debauched morals as old Franklin, who is more his model than anyone I know. Throughout his life, Adams made highly critical statements about Hamilton. He made derogatory references to his womanizing, real or alleged, and slurred him as the Creole bastard. In the end, Adams won the presidency by a narrow margin, receiving 71 electoral votes to 68 for Jefferson, who became the vice president. Pickney finished in third with 59 votes, and Burr came in fourth with 30. The balance of electoral college votes were dispersed among nine other candidates. This is the only election to date in which a president and vice president were elected from opposing tickets. Presidency, 1797-1801. Inauguration. Adams sworn into office as the nation's second president on March 4, 1797, by Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth. As president, he followed Washington's lead in using the presidency to exemplify Republican values and civic virtue, and his service was free of scandal. Adams spent much of his term at, the Mass at his Massachusetts home, Peacefield, Peacefield, preferring the quietness of domestic life to business at the Capitol. He ignored the political patronage and office figures 
which other office holders utilized. Historians debate his decision to remain to retain the members of Washington's cabinet in light of cabinet's loyalty to Hamilton. The Hamiltonians who surrounded him, Jefferson soon remarked, are only a little less hostile to him than to me. Although aware of Hamilton's influence, Adams was convinced that the retention ensured a smoother succession. Adams maintained the economic programs of Hamilton, who regularly consulted with key cabinet members, especially the powerful Secretary, Treasury Secretary Oliver Wolcott Jr. Adams was, in other respects, quite independent of his cabinet, often making decisions despite opposition from it. Hamilton had grown accustomed to being regularly consulted by Washington. Shortly after Adams was inaugurated, Hamilton sent him a detailed letter filled with policy suggestions for the new administration. Adams dismissed it, ignored it. Failed Peace Commission and XYZ Affair. Historian Joseph Ellis writes that the Haddon's presidency was destined to be dominated by a single question of American policy to the an extent seldom, if ever, encountered by any succeeding occupant of the office. <coughs> <coughs> that question was whether to make war with France or find peace. In Europe, Britain and France were at war as a result of the French Revolution. Hamilton and the Federals favored the British monarchy against what they perceived to be the political and anti-religious radicalism of the French Revolution, while Jefferson and the Republicans, with their firm opposition to monarchy, strongly supported France. The French had supported Jefferson for president and became even more belligerent at his loss when Adams and in office he decided to continue Washington's policy of staying out of the war. Because of the Jay Treaty, the French saw American as Britain's junior partner and began seizing American merchant ships that were trading with the British. Most Americans were still pro-French due to France's, France's assistance during the revolution, the perceived humiliation of the Jay Treaty, and the desire to support a republic against the British monarchy and would not tolerate war with France. On May 16, 1797, Adams gave a speech to the House and Senate in which he called for increasing defense capabilities <coughs> in case of war with France. He announced that he would send a peace commission to France, but simultaneously called for a military buildup to counter any potential French threat. The speech was well received by the Federalists. Adams was depicted as an eagle holding an olive branch in a one talent and the emblems of defense in the other. The Republicans were outraged for Adams has not had not only failed to express support for the cause of the French Republic, but appeared to be calling for war against it. Sentiments changed with the XYZ affair. The peace commission that Adams appointed consisted of John Marshall, Charles Coates with Pickney, and L. Bridge Jerry. Jefferson met four times with Jeff, Joseph Latome, the French consul of Philadelphia. Latome wrote to Paris today that Jefferson had told him that it was France's best sense to treat the American minister civilly, but then drag out the negotiations at length to arrive at most favorable solution. According to Latome, Jefferson called Adams vain, suspicious, and stubborn. When the envoys arrived in October, they were kept waiting for several days and then granted only a 15-minute meeting with French Foreign Minister Talleyrand. The diplomats were then met by three of Talleyrand's agents, the French emissary later codenamed X, Y, and Z refused to conduct negotiations unless the United States paid enormous bribes, one to Talion personally and another to the Republic of France. Supposedly this was to make up for the offenses given to France by Adams in his speech. 
The Americans refused to negotiate on such terms. Marshall and Pickney returned home while Jerry remained. News of the disastrous peace commission arrived in the form of a memorandum from Marshall on March 4, 1798. Adams, not wanting to incite violent impulses among the populace, announced that the mission had failed without providing details. He also sent a message to Congress asking for a new renewal of the nation's defenses. The Republicans frustrated the president's defense measures, suspecting that he might be hiding material favorable to France, the House, with the support of Frederick, who had heard rumors of what was contained in the messages. And were happy to assist the Republicans voted overwhelmingly to demand that Adams release the papers. Once they were released, the Republicans, according to Abigail, were struck drum. Benjamin Franklin Bogg, editor of the Philadelphia Aurora, blamed Adams' aggression as the cause of the disaster. Among the general public, the effects were very different. The affairs substantially weakened popular American support of France. Adams reached the height of his popularity as many in the country called for full-scale war against the French. Alien and Sedition Acts Despite the XYZ affair, Republican opposition persisted. Federalists accused the French and their associated immigrants of provoking civil unrest in an attempt to quell the outcry the Federalists introduced the, and Congress passed a series of laws collectively referred to as the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were signed by Adams in June 1798. Congress specifically passed four measures, the Naturalization Act, the Alien Friends Act, the Alien Enemies Act, and the Sedition Act. All came within a period of two weeks in what Jefferson called an unguarded passion. The Alien Friends Act, Alien Friend Enemies Act, and Naturalization Act targeted immigrants, specifically French, by giving the president greater deportation authority and increased citizenship requirements. The Sedition Act made its crime to publish false scandals and malicious writing against the government or its officials. Adams had not promoted any of these acts, but was urged to sign them by his wife and cabinet. He eventually agreed and signed the bills into law. Thomas Jefferson, Adams' vice president, attempted to undermine many of his actions as president and eventually defeated him for re-election. The administration initiated 14 or more indictments under the Sedition Act as well as suits against five of the six most prominent Republican newspapers. The majority of the legal actions began in 1798 and 1799 and went to trial on the eve of 1800 presidential election. Other historians have cited evidence that the Alien and Sedition Acts were rarely enforced, namely, 1. Only 10 convictions under seditions have been identified, 2. Adams never signed a deportation order, and 3. The sources expressed fear over the acts were Republicans. The acts allowed for prosecution of many who opposed the Federalists. Congressman Matthew Lyon of Vermont was sentenced to four months in jail for criticizing the president. Adams resisted Pickering's attempts to deport aliens, although many left in their own largely in response to the hostile environment. Republicans were outraged. Jefferson, disgusted by the acts, wrote nothing publicly, but partnered with Madison to secretly draft the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. Jefferson, writing for Kentucky, wrote that states had the natural right to nullify any acts they deemed unconstitutional. Writing to Madison, he speculated that as a last resort, the states might have to sever ourselves from the Union we so much value. Federalists reacted bitterly to the resolutions, which were to have far more lasting implications for the country than the Alien and Sedition Acts. Still, the acts Adams signed into law energized and unified the Republican Party while doing little to unite the Federalists. Quasi-war. 
In May 1798, a French privateer captured a merchant vessel off of the New York Harbor, an increase in the attacks on sea marked the beginning of the undeclared naval war known as the Quasi-War. Adams knew that America would be unable to win a major conflict, but both because of its internal divisions and because France at the time was dominating the, fl the fight in most of Europe. He, <coughs> he, <coughs> he pursued a strategy whereby America harassed French ships in an, to, in an effort sufficient to stem the French assault on American interests. In May, shortly after the attack in New York, Congress created a separate Navy department. The prospect of a French invasion of the U.S. mainland led for calls to build up army. Hamilton and other high Federalists were particularly adamant that a large army be called up in spite of common fear, particularly among Americans, Republicans, excuse me, Republicans, that large standing armies were subversive to liberty. In May, a provisional army of 10,000 soldiers were authorized by Congress. In July, Congress created 12 infantry regiments and provided for six Cavalry companies, these numbers exceeded Adams' request, but fell short of Hamilton's. Adams was pressured by Federalists to appoint Hamilton, who had served as Washington's aide de camp during the Revolution, to command the army. Distrustful of Hamilton and fearing a plot to subvert his administration, Adams appointed Washington to command without consulting him. Washington's surprise and as a condition of acceptance demanded that he be permitted to appoint his own subordinates. He wished to have Henry Knox as second in command, followed by Hamlet and then Charles Pickney. On June 2nd, Hamlet wrote to Washington that he would not serve unless he was made inspector general and second in command. Washington sees that Hamlet, despite holding a rank cooler than that of Knox and Pickney, had by serving on his staff more opportunity to co comprehend the whole military scene. And she had therefore outranked them. Adams sent Secretary of War McHenry to Mount Vernon to convince Washington to accept the post. McHenry put forth his opinion that Washington would not serve unless appointed to choose his own officers. Adams had intended to appoint Republicans Burr and Frederick Muhlenberg to make it, the Army appear partisan. Washington's list consisted entirely of Federalists. Adams relented and agreed to submit to the Senate the names of Hamilton, Pickney, and Knox in that order, although final decisions of rank would be reserved to Adams. Knox refused to serve under the conditions. Adams firmly intended to give to Hamlin the lowest possible rank, while Washington and many other wrongly insisted that the order in which the names had been submitted to the Senate must determine seniority. On September 21st, Adams received a letter from McHenry relaying a statement of Washington threatening to resign if Hamlin were not, Hamlin were not made second in command. Adams knew of the backlash that he would receive from Federalists should he continue his course, and he was forced to capitulate despite bitter resentment against many of his federal, 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 fellow Federalists. The severe illness of Abigail, whom Adams feared was near death, exacerbated his suffering and frustration. Alexander Hamilton's desire for a high military rank and his push for war with France put him in conflict with Adams. If quick, it quickly became apparent that due to Washington's advanced age, Hamilton was the Army's de facto commander. He exerted effective control over the War Department, taking over supplies for the Army. Meanwhile, Adams built up the Navy, adding six fast, powerful frigates, most notably the USS Constitution. The Quasi-War continued, but there was a notable decline in war fever beginning in the fall, 
Once news arrived of the defeat, French defeat at the Battle of the Nile, which many Americans hoped would make them more disposed to negotiate. In October, Adams heard from Jerry in Paris that the French wanted to make peace and would probably receive an American delegation. That December, in his address to Congress, Adams relayed these statements while expressing the need to maintain adequate defenses. The speech angered both Federalists, including Hamilton, many of whom he wanted to he wanted whom wanted a request for a declaration of war. And Republicans Hamilton secretly promoted the plan, already rejected by Adams, in which American and British troops would combine to seize Spanish Florida and Louisiana, ostensibly to deter a possible French invasion. Hamilton's critics, including Abigail, saw in his military buildups the signs of an aspiring military dictator. On February 18, 1799, Adams surprised many by nominating diplomat William Vance Murray on a peace mission to France. Decisions made without consulting his cabinet or even Abigail, or nonetheless, who nonetheless, upon hearing of it, described it as a master stroke. To placate Republicans, he nominated Patrick Henry and Ellsworth to accompany Murray and the Senate immediately approved them on March 3rd. Henry declined the nomination, and Adams chose William Richardson Davy to replace him. Hamilton strongly criticized the decision, as did Adams' cabinet members, who maintained frequent communication with him. Adams again questioned the loyalty of those men, but did not remove them. To the annoyance of many, Adams spent a full seven months, March to September of 1799, in Peaceville, finally returning to Trenton, where the government had set up temporary quarters due to the yellow fever epidemic. After a letter arrived from Talleyrand confirming Jerry's statement that American ministers would be perceived, Adams then decided to send the commissioners to France. Adams arrived back in Trenton on October 10th. Shortly after, Hamilton, in a breach of military protocol, arrived uninvited at the city to speak with the president, urging him not to send the peace commissioners, but instead to ally with Britain, which he viewed to be the stronger party, to restore the Bourbons to France. I heard him with perfect good humor, though never in my life did I hear a man talk more like a fool. Adams said he regarded Hamilton's idea as chimerical and far-fetched. On November 15th, the commissioners set sail for Paris. Fry's Rebellion to pay for the military buildup of the quasi-war, Adams and his Federalist allies enacted a direct tax of 1798. Direct taxation by the federal government was widely unpopular, and the government's revenue under Washington had mostly come from excise taxes and tariffs. Though Washington had maintained a balanced budget with the help of a growing economy, increased military expenditures threatened to cause major budget deficits, and the Federalists developed a taxation plan to meet the need for increased government revenue. The direct tax of 1798 instituted a progressive land value tax of up to 1% of the value of a property. Taxpayers in eastern Pennsylvania resisted federal tax collectors, and in March 1799, the bloodless Fry's Rebellion broke out. Led by Revolutionary War veteran John Fry's, rural German-speaking farmers protested what they saw as a threat to their liberties. They intimidated tax collectors who often found themselves unable to go about their business. The disturbance was quickly ended with Hamilton leading the army to restore peace. Fry's and two other leaders were arrested, found guilty of treason, and sentenced to hang. They appealed to Adams requesting a pardon. The cabinet unanimously advised Adams to refuse, but he insisted 
Stead granted the pardon, using as justification the arguments that the men had instigated a mere riot as opposed to a rebellion. In his pen of attack he added before the election, Hamilton wrote that it was impossible to commit a greater error. Federalist Divisions and Peace On May 5, 1800, Addison's frustrations with the Hamilton wing of the party exploded during a meeting with McHenry, a Hamilton loyalist who was universally regarded even by Hamilton as an inept Secretary of War. Adams accused him of surveillance to Hamilton and declared that he would rather serve as Jefferson's Vice President or Minister at The Hague than be beholden to Hamilton for the presidency. McHenry offered to resign at once and Adams attempt accepted. On May 10th, he asked Pickering to resign. Pickering refused and was summarily dismissed. Adams named John Marshall as Secretary of State and Samuel Dexter as Secretary of War. In 1799, Napoleon took over as head of the French government in the coup of 18 Brumaire and declared the French Revolution over. News of this event increased Adams' desire to disband the Provisional Army, which was with Washington now dead, was commanded only by Hamilton. His moves to end the army after the departures of McHenry and Pickering were met with little opposition rather than allow Adams to receive the credit. Frederick joined the Republicans in the voting to disband the army in mid-1800. Napoleon realized that the conflict was pointless, signals his readiness for friendly relations. By the convention of 1800, the two sides agreed to return any captured ships and to allow for the peaceful transfer of non-military goods to an enemy of the nation. On January 3, 23, 1801, the Senate voted 16 to 14 in favor of the treaty, four votes short of the necessary two-thirds. Some Federalists, including Hamlin, urged that the Senate vote in favor of the treaty with reservations. A new proposal was then drawn up demanding that the Treaty of Alliance of 1778 be superseded and that, that France pay for its damage to American property. On February 3rd, the treaty with the reservations passed 22 to 9 was, and was signed by Adams. As President Adams proudly avoided war but deeply split his party in the process. Historian Ron Chernow writes that the threat of Jacobinism was the only one thing that united the Federalist Party and that Adams' elimination of it unwittingly contributed to the party's demise. News of the peace treaty did not arrive in the United States until after the election, too late to sway the results. Establishing government institutions and moved to Washington. Adams' leadership on naval defense had sometimes led him to be called the father of the American Navy. In July of 1798, he signed into law an act for the relief of sick and disabled seamen, which authorized the establishment of the government-operated Marine Hospital Service. In 1800, he saw the law establishing the Library of Congress. Adams made his first official visit to the nation's new seat of government in early June 1800, and in the raw and unfinished cityscape, the president found the public buildings in it a much greater forwardness of completion than expected. He moved into the nearly completed President's Mansion, later known as the White House, on November 1st. Abigail arrived a few weeks later. Upon arriving, Adams wrote to her, Before I end my letter, I pray heaven to bestow the best of blessings on this house and all that shall inherit hereafter inhabit it. May none, of, may none but honest and wise men ever rule under this roof. The Senate of the Seventh Congress met for the first time in the new Congress House, later known as the Capitol Building, on November 17, 1800. On November 22nd, Adams delivered his fourth State of the Union address to a joint session of Congress in the old Supreme Court chamber. This will be the last annual message any president would personally deliver to Congress for the next 113 years. 
election of 1800. With the Federalist Rod deeply split over his negotiations with France and the opposition to the Republican Party enraged over the Alien and Sedition Acts and the expansion of the military, Adams faced a daunting re-election campaign in 1800. The Federalist, Con the Federalist Congressman caucused in the spring of 1800 and nominated Adams and Charles Coatswood Pickney, the Republicans nominated Jefferson and Burr, their candidates in the previous election. The campaign was bitter and characterized by malicious insults by partisan presses on both sides. The Federalists claimed that the Republicans were the enemies of all who love order, peace, virtue, and religion. They were said to be libertines and dangerous radicals who favored states' rights over the Union and would instigate anarchy and civil war. Jefferson's rumored affairs with slaves were used against him. Republicans in turn accused Federalists of subverting Republican principles throughout punitive federal laws and of favoring Britain and other coalition countries in their war with France to promote aristocratic anti-Republican values. Jefferson was portrayed as an apostle of liberty and man of the people, while Adams labeled a monarchist. He was accused of insanity and marital infidelity. James T. Callender, a public propagandist, secretly financed by Jefferson, degraded Adams' character and accused him of attempting to make war with France. Calendar was arrested and jailed under the Sedition Act, which only further inflamed Republican passions. Opposition from the Federalist Party was at times equally intense. Some, including Pickering, accused Adams of colluding with Jefferson so that he would end up either, vice, either president or vice president. Hamilton was hard at work attempting to sabotage the president's re-election, planning an indictment of Adams' character. He requested and received private documents from both the ousted cabinet Secretaries and Wolcott, the letter was intended for only a few Federalist electors. Upon seeing a draft, several Federalists urged Hamlin not to send out. Wolcott wrote that the poor old man could do himself and without Hamlin's assistance. Hamlin did not heed their advice. On October 24th, he sent a pamphlet strongly attacking Hamlin's policies and character. Hamlin denounced the precipice nomination of Murray, the pardoning of Fries, and the firing of Pickering. He included a fair share of personal insults, vilifying the president's disgusting egotism and ungovernable temper. Adams, he concluded, was emotionally unstable, given to impulsive and irrational decisions, unable to coexist with the closest advisors, and generally unfit to be president. Stranger ended by saying that the electors should support Adams and Pickney equally. Thanks to Burr, who had covertly obtained a copy, the pamphlet became public knowledge and was distributed throughout the country by Republicans, who rejoiced in what it contained. The pamphlet destroyed the Federalist Party, ended Hamblin's political career, and helped ensure Adams' already likely defeat. When the electoral votes were counted, Adams finished in third place with 65 votes, and Pickney came in fourth with 64 votes. Jefferson and Burr tied for first place with 73 votes. Because of the tie, the election devolved upon the House of Representatives, with each state having one vote and a supermajority required for victory. On February 17, 1808, on the 36th ballot, Jefferson was elected by a vote of 10 to 4. Two states abstained. It is noteworthy that Hamilton's scheme, although it made the Federalists appear divided and helped Jefferson win, failed in his overall attempt to woo Federalist electors away from Adams. To compound the th agony of his defeat, Adam's son Charles, a long-time died on November 30th. Angus Stewart joined Abigail, who had already left for the Massachusetts 
Adams departed the White House in the pre-dawn hours of March 4, 1801, and did not attend Jefferson's inauguration. Since him, only three out of going presidents have concerned a full term have not attended their successors' inaugurations. The composition arising out of the 1796 and 1800 elections prompted Congress and the states to refine the process whereby the Electoral College elects the president and the vice president through the 12th Amendment, which became a part of the Constitution in 1804. Uh, part 2 to be continued.